0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK.
0: This is the BBC. This is Under the Weather from the BBC.
1: With me, Claire Nazir, and Simon King.
0: In this podcast, we'll be joined by a range of experts as we answer some of weather's most interesting and
2: challenging questions.
1: In this episode...
2: Space weather forecasting now is trying to see how these regions are developing over a few days as they move perhaps towards the centre of the sun as we see it from Earth.
0: Under the weather from the BBC.
1: Oh my goodness, solar weather.
2: It's a
0: big one, solar weather, isn't it?
1: Space weather, really.
0: It is space Mm. weather. Should we start with actually what space weather is? Yeah, go on then. It's the collective term used to describe a series of phenomena originating from the sun. And you get three main types, really. Yeah. Solar flares, mm-hmm. solar energetic particles and coronal mass ejections.
1: In um, the Met Office, they've got a space weather department, mm-hmm. which I absolutely love to go and visit because they've got all these images of the sun on the screens and all different colours.
0: It looks very pretty, I've seen very it. Very
1: pretty, and that's as far as I can go with it, really.
0: I <laughs> just know that. That's the sun. Yeah. But how's it green?
1: Green or red, and sometimes it's orange.
0: Don't look at the sun directly.
1: That's what we're going to say right at the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> Please don't look at the sun directly.
0: Before we go on, I've got here the um, the National Risk Register of Civil Emergencies by the Cabinet Office. It's quite a hefty little um, bit yeah. of document, but you want to know why I've got it. Mm. Um So this is basically what the Cabinet Office released to kind of highlight what are the risks to the UK population. Now, if I go to Chapter 3 and we talk about risks, natural hazards, flooding, severe weather. Mm -hmm. Third on the list, space weather. So it comes in amongst volcanic eruptions, poor air quality, earthquakes and wildfires.
1: My goodness, that's amazing, isn't it? So it's up there at number three
0: it can disrupt a lot of things on Earth. You think about satellites, GPS, uh, that will be disrupted. Obviously, the folks in the International Space Station, Mm -hmm. they will be disrupted by it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you can get electricity blackouts, radio blackouts. And basically, if, if, if we get a big solar storm that affects the planet... You know, we can have disruption to essential services such as air travel, energy, financial and communications, and even health. You know, there could be increases in background radiation uh, high up in the atmosphere and in space. And this is why the Met Office has a space weather forecasting centre, isn't it?
1: This is why, on the National Risk Register, it is actually number three. Are we equipped for um, a huge surge in plasma X-rays coming to Earth? They're attracted, obviously, by our magnetic field so we see them mostly in the form of auroras on the north pole and the south pole that's the same that, sort of process
0: and that's the beautiful side of yeah. space weather isn't it the northern and the southern lights have you seen have you seen the northern lights I've
1: actually I've, I've um, filmed quite a lot in Iceland I filmed quite a lot in northern Canada mm. And when I was in Iceland, I was chatting to the Icelandic Tourist Board and they said, we get a lot of uh, Chinese and Japanese people coming over for a couple of days and they all they love to see the aurora. I said, well, we all do. They said, no, 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 this is something a little bit deeper than that. Right. They believe there's a direct correlation between an aurora happening and fertility. Right. So you get these tourists who are Japanese mm-hmm. and Chinese spotting the aurora and then they all disappear (laughs) so much so that in iceland now you can actually book a hotel room with a glass ceiling no
0: way really
1: so you know it it has impacts on so many different levels okay
0: yeah it does well i'd love to i'd love to see the aurora Maybe mm. we shouldn't go together you know, no. on that basis, no. but um, it's definitely my bucket list. <laughs> but I, I,
1: I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> you just got that. Yeah. that just
1: no, no, no. It's delay. It a delay. <laughs> <laughs> so when I saw it, it was a greeny colour. Yeah. But obviously the ones you really, really want yeah. to see are the, the purples. Oh, you want to see the purples. Mm. What about the reds? Mm. I'd love to know what that means, how different it is and whether, you know, we're talking twins, triplets. No, <laughs> no I'm talking about what type of uh, gases. Yeah induce that type of colour
0: so joining us to answer the question of why should we care about space weather we're joined by professor mike hapgood and he's the head of space weather at ral space which is one of the uk's major space research groups mike thank you very much for joining us pleasure Uh, now let's get straight into it uh we're talking about space weather could you just give us a brief description of what is space weather
2: a colleague of mine in, in UK came with a really good pithy answer which is we're talking about disturbances in the upper atmosphere of the earth and in the space around the earth that affect so many of the technologies that are, are critical to smooth running of everyday life. That's it in a substance but of course those disturbances ultimately have their origins on the sun in things like coronal mass ejections and solar radiation storms.
1: Is this a new or has this been going on for decades? Well,
2: you know, it's fairly new. I think the discussions really triggered back in 2010 and then it took some years quite naturally to get it funded and the space weather service at Met Office started in 2014 and an official opening by the then science minister in October of 2014.
0: So that's quite interesting that you're saying it's quite a relatively new thing. But then if we look at history, in 2003, we had quite a big space uh, weather event where a lot of um, technologies, technologies were nearly wiped out. And we had the Carrington event, which was in 1859. 59. And that was the real big one, wasn't it? Which caused a huge amount of disruption. But I'm just interested then that, you know, you had those big events. We've, we've known about the, the issues with space weather for a long, long time. But a
2: relatively new thing then that we're kind of looking at it. If you think back to what happened in 2010, there is the clue. In the spring of 2010, we had the Icelandic volcano, whose name I'm not going to try and pronounce. That popped off in the April and caused huge disruption. And that's when the uh, people running our civil continuity service in cabinet office here in the UK, they started talking to the scientific community about that. They said, we've been trying to tell you about this for years. Mm. And so this set people thinking, well, what else is out there that could cause us a big problem? And within about a month, we were starting to talk about space weather. So it was wow. the volcano that wow. really That's triggered wider th- And if you look at what's happening in the UK, you know, the, last year they published the latest version of the risk assessment and there's another one in process now. And they're looking very carefully at uh, where these things lie. You know, they look both, how likely is it to happen and then how bad would the impact in the UK?
1: So how violent are conditions on the surface of the sun and around its atmosphere?
2: It's hard to see to put it on a scale. People talk about vast numbers of atomic weapons to scale it. I don't find that terribly useful. Uh, I I think the big thing is that it can... In quiet times, it's bubbling away. It's something that we'd probably still regard as fairly violent on a human scale, but on the cosmic scale, it's nothing. And suddenly then we have these huge eruptions with great clouds of hot gas, the things we call coronal mass ejections. And they contain millions of, or billions of tons of matter flung out into the solar system at speeds up to several thousand kilometers a second. Which, again, that's an enormous speed for humans, but it's quite natural speed in, a, in what we call a plasma environment, such as we have in space, where the gas is so hot it's ionised.
1: Let's um, talk about solar flares and CMEs. What's the difference between them? Because the process, the beginning of the process, I think seems to be the same, but then they have different properties, they travel differently, and they affect Earth differently if they reach the Earth.
2: The thing is they really probably don't necessarily have the same start. Ah. There are overlaps, but it's often a confusion that people think that there is a direct link between solar flares and coronal mass ejections. Um, the solar corona is full of these magnetic fields that are generated inside the Sun and then rise up into the Sun's atmosphere the corona but they then get twisted as the Sun spins round because it spins at different speeds at different latitudes those magnetic field lines get very entangled and you see that in these wonderful pictures looking at the Sun with extreme ultraviolet light you can see all this tangling because the magnetic fields are kind of brought out by the glowing gas on those field lines but eventually that becomes unstable and the field. Lines basically break and reform uh, releasing a lot of energy which goes into heat and, and accelerated particles but also it can cause some of those magnet field lines to become detached from the sun and basically that's when we get a coronal mass ejection, some part of the sun's atmosphere has become magnetically detached from the sun. At that point, the, because of the, the corona is so hot, it will just be escaping to, into interplanetary space. And part of that's also accelerated by the magnetic energy that's released.
1: So how, now, how long does it take for um, one of these coronal mass ejections to form and then reach the Earth?
2: hours to days it's it's when the whole thing in space weather forecasting now is trying to see how these regions are developing over a few days as they move perhaps towards the center of the sun as we see it from earth and so if they're released that's when they come towards us Uh, and typically we'll be looking at that over a few days and it's really quite dynamical and when of course it goes it's happening in minutes if not seconds the reconfiguration of this
0: this is Under the Weather with Professor Mike Hapgood. And we've talked about the, the sun and the weather in space in general. We've gone through some of the terms. But what we're really interested in is should we care about space weather in the UK? The one thing that I think many people may know already about how space weather impacts us is by the northern lights and the southern lights, the aurora, and how beautiful that is. Uh, but that's the kind of the nice side of space weather, I guess, isn't it? Definitely, isn't it, Mike? yeah, yeah, what, yeah what, definitely. What, what are the big impacts that we might see?
2: The headline one that always gets people's attention is if the power grid were affected and uh, and there was to be a trip out and a blackout. If we're run, if we don't have electric power, it really becomes very inconvenient very quickly these days because we just use electricity for everything.
1: So what actually is 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 it the power? Is the grid which is affected rather than digital? comms it's the actual sort of physical um, sort the, of generators the, the, of electricity there's
2: a whole raft of issues there are some issues with digital but let's deal with the power grid first the main thing is the distribution and um, particularly it's the transformers and some of the other devices that make the uh, power grid work so you can take power from the power stations ultimately to our homes or our offices and um, What uh, what space weather ultimately will do, if you go a magnetic storm, that magnetic field, changing magnetic field in the storms, will induce electric fields in the crust of the Earth. And we've known about that for nearly 200 years. We've known these electric fields exist. But if you've got a system that's also electrically grounded, as they have to be for for safety reasons, and that's true of the power grid, it's true of railway track, railway signal circuits, true of pipelines, many, many systems, they all have to be electrically grounded. Just as, in fact, your house, all things are electrically grounded. But the, the electric fields in the earth can put currents, extra currents into the power grid. But basically what happens at that point is that the transformers will start to dissipate power that they need to operate. They will, can start vibrating, heating up, things like that. Uh, and particularly that's, that dissipation of power can cause a voltage collapse, as we call it. Not a physical collapse, but the voltage will drop. In fact, this did happen, I think, in Scotland in, during a magnetic storm in 1982. Uh, and there was some loss of power, I think, in the Edinburgh area. It, it it is documented but not necessarily that too well known um and then back in 1989 we had similar problems big currents in the power systems and there Nobody lost power, which was great. Everybody could just enjoy the bigger aural display. But there were a couple of Transformers, one in Cornwall, one near Norwich, that tripped out because the alarms on them went off, saying there was something not right in the Transformers. And that was really a big wake-up call in the UK. But at the same time, over the Atlantic, the whole province of Quebec, their whole power system went down. Uh, In fact, not at the same time, in another part of the same magnetic storm. Uh, And that really set the whole industry, power industry around the world thinking about these things. And since then there have been problems in New Zealand where they lost a transformer in 2001, in South Africa where they lost a lot of transformers in 2003. And so there's been an enormous amount of work done all over the world on this and it it continues to this day. And that's really
1: the lifeline for everyone, isn't it? The power grid is pretty much the basic tool that we use to survive every day, get to work, comms, etc. So that's the... That's the basic level, then obviously, what's the knock-on effect from that point upwards?
2: That's the thing we've been involved supporting economists, looking at studies of this what happens to the knock on and you're talking quickly talking about billions of uh, of pounds of of costs even just for the UK alone let alone other countries and then people the economists of course can then see if you knock out the power in one country, what effect does that have on some other you know in the UK because we're such a big trading nation uh, uh, this problem anyway in the world is bad news for us.
0: so presumably Mike. Uh, The electrical companies, the government, they're aware of this risk. Oh, very much so. Uh, What have they got in place to prevent it from... Knocking everything out.
2: There's a lot of work being done. The lead time is probably several days. Certainly, from events that we've seen in history, events I've watched, you have several days build up. But often you will have a a region of strong activity on the sun. When it comes into view, it's on the east side of the sun, so on the right, as on the left, sorry, as we as we would look at it in the sky, and it gradually rotates down to the centre. So it's when it's right in the centre, facing the earth, that can fire things coronal mass ejection in our direction so we can kind of watch that build up and we're now you know there's studies going on now to try and put a spacecraft into interplanetary space uh, so we can watch that build up better from a vantage point to the east of the sun Uh, and that's a big european thing that the uk is driving at the moment and there's just a whole new round of international studies kicked off on that Uh, so that's one of the things how do we watch this better but the big driver of course, has been the driving the Met Office space weather service and then working closely with national Grid so they've done exercises together. How would we do it? So there are a lot of plans being put in place to deal with the power grid
0: so, so would it be inevitable then if we had a big event you know is it a certainty that we would lose all of, all of our power but no. then it's a case of, of how quickly it would come back on again
2: yeah one of the big things is to try to make sure that minimize the damage. Mm. Now, power grids around the world—they're always worried about that. They the whole grid goes down for whatever reason. That's happened in, the, for instance, in the U.S. at times, and in Europe at times because of either bad weather or somebody just pressing the wrong button. in in the, In the case of some of the European grids, a few years ago. Um, and so we, people have what they call the black start procedure. How do you put the bit, grid back on? And it might take a, a few hours to a few days to get everybody back on power. But there's well-practiced procedures. for. You have to start with the power stations that can start themselves, get them running, and then you get to the power stations that, that need electricity to get them going.
0: I, I guess in, in times of severe weather in the UK anyway, when we have strong winds or hmm. uh, icing or whatever, then we do have cuts, don't we? And I guess they are ex- well rehearsed, rehearsed. That's exactly into, yeah. A lot of the yeah.
2: precautions are actually inter- You where know, in those procedures we already use for bad weather can we use them for space weather? And there's an awful lot of overlap.
1: I just don't think two days is long enough. I really don't. I mean, when we forecast bad weather in this country, we try and give four to five days. Yeah. And in fact, we're not just talking about power. We're talking about power lines down. I mean, there must mm. be... Is there any detrimental damage, physical damage that could happen to the power grid? So rather than just getting it back online, there's things that have to be fixed mm. you know i can just imagine in my mind's eye've got fires going off as there's a, <laughs> a sharp shock system as all these all these plasma rays come in and
2: and disrupt not quite, us not, not quite that dramatic oh. but on the timescale thing i think we now have four or five days warning of the really bad wet, ordinary weather simply mm-hmm. because over 50 years or so the forecasting so we got so much better and that's what we want to do with space weather but it's going to take you know we always say we're about 50 years behind uh, ordinary weather forecasting and I think that's probably pretty realistic. Uh, and a lot of research is now going into that and people beginning to really grasp what we need to do to improve the forecast rather than just do the just do the science because it interests us but also recognize there's an element there there's a real goal here, not not just curiosity driven science but a real practical use to that.
0: So we mentioned the Carrington event in 1859. Mike, what actually happened then?
2: Uh, It's named after Richard Carrington, who was uh, 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 an eminent British astronomer of the period. He was secretary of the Royal Astronomical Society at the time. Um, And he had a private observatory, a private means, so he could could be called an amateur scientist, but he was actually a very well-off amateur scientist, so professional level. And he had an observatory at Red Hill, south of london and he was observing the sun on 1st of september 1859 uh they, the astronomers at the time already knew there were two huge sunspot groups in the group because they'd seen it you know sunspots were well known and then he saw this bright white light and this is actually the first observation of a solar flare and they found that interesting at the same time there was magnetic measurements being made at Kew Observatory in the west of London and they had a big flip on it which we now know was the the result of the x-rays from the flare caused a brief perturbation of the earth's atmosphere and produced an extra magnetic extra electric currents that produce that perturbation but we didn't understand that until the 1930s at that point it was just all very intriguing and coincidental but then right the next day at five o'clock in the morning our time suddenly, all, basically all hell broke loose in the sky, aurora everywhere. Uh, it was actually best seen in the United States, as you imagine, five o'clock in, here in September, it's starting to get light.
0: Uh, and, and, and here, and was, in the US, it was
2: the middle of the night, and people could read newspapers in the middle of the night wow. and things like that. And
0: I'd heard that the aurora was seen as far south as um, South America. Well, hmm. not South America. the, yeah. the well, it's, it's classic.
2: When you get a big, big magnetic storm, essentially it almost unpeels the Earth's magnetic field. So instead of the aurora and all these effects being just limited to high light, that whole region expands almost down to the equator. In fact, one of the most remarkable things about the whole storm is there was a magnetometer being run in Mumbai, what was then called Bombay, and they saw a huge magnetic perturbation. And fortunately, the guys, it was manually recorded, the guys recording that clearly realised something was going on. Instead of making one measurement every hour, they made one measurement every 10 minutes.
0: I imagine, like, you know, in 1859, do you think people would have been a bit disturbed by it, scared by it, or do you think they're like, well, what's this beautiful thing that happened?" Because you normally
1: only see auroras, you know, the Arctic Mm. Circle, maybe Northern Scotland. Occasionally, it's been seen further south as Milton Mm. Keynes, but not Honolulu, not Cuba.
2: Yeah. It happens occasionally, even at other times there have been a good number of events. I think my impression of most of it is people thought, wow, this is fascinating, but it didn't have much effect. Mm. You know, it, don't, it won't affect steam. Trains are invulnerable course, to yeah. it. Yeah. Things like that, ordinary life, everything. With horse-drawn carts, it aren't affected by. The one technology that was affected by that was the telegraph, electric telegraph. And there you had some enterprising folks running it, realising, we'll disconnect the batteries and see what we can do. And they were sending signals over the telegraph wires without the batteries connected <laughs> because the Storm was putting enough current into the wires. Wow. But there was also the downside. Some places, I think people got shocks off the wires and some places some small fires started. Um, yeah. Nothing too enormous. There were actually worse fires in 1921, when I think there was a signal box in New York burnt down because of this, and a telephone exchange in Sweden.
1: So there could be fires then.
2: There could be fires. There's certainly in in historical records, but that's back in the days when we actually sent use copper wire for communications. Now we use optical fibre. We've got that's the one great thing. We've got rid of that problem by using optical fibre.
0: So the Carrington event was a, a one in 500 year event
2: most people argue one in a hundred oh really okay yeah, well, hang well. on a minute right
1: okay so we really need to steam ahead we need to catch up with this two-day forecast and maybe anticipate it a bit more I mean, that's
2: partly why we want to fly this mission out into space to look at the east side of the Sun because if we can see the, re- the have a better view of how things are developing on the Sun before they turn to look at us we also have a can have a side on viewers of coronal mass ejections as they travel towards the earth that will help us both to anticipate the launch of an event and and also to get a more accurate track of when it's going to arrive, because you really want to give people a really accurate estimate of when it's going to arrive, so they don't have to keep telling all the different operation shifts. You know, you might have a problem. You want, you know, you want you, when you've got a system that's at risk, you want your A team in the operations room ready and primed to deal with whatever's happening.
0: So, do you think we should be? worried then if we had another one of the, you said one in 100 years do you think if we had another one of these events you know next month next year mm-hmm. do you think we should be worried about that or do you think it'll be fine
2: i think somewhere in between i think we should be wary it's be prepared isn't it the old scout motto mm-hmm. and i think we're, we're, we've made some good progress to all being prepared there's a lot more to do and one of the big problems we have is keep maintaining awareness it's all very well to tell people We've had over the last now, well, it must be 12, 15 years since we've really had any big activity. I know there's been, there were things last September, uh, and there was a big event, a biggish event in, um, in fact, Patrick's day of 2015. But those are really small compared with what we've seen historically, even in, you know, in my career. The events in 89 and 2003 were monstrous compared to that, and the sun's really wallowing uh, us into a false sense of security at the moment.
0: Mike, this has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. Next time on Under the Weather. Rain. Clearly, you can hear it. You can see it. You can touch it, of course. Can you
1: taste it? Oh yes, I used to love tasting the rain, sticking out my tongue in a rainstorm. I was young then.
0: But can you smell rain?
1: And if we can smell it, what are we actually smelling?
0: The scent of water is very subtle, but we're very connected to it. For some reason, and we don't really know why, we have this ability to detect this molecule at incredibly, incredibly low levels. If you're downwind of the storm that's coming towards you, you will smell it. I mean, it's just like hearing a train coming towards you.
1: Subscribe to Under the Weather now for a new episode every Monday.